Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The House remains speakerless as GOP members oppose Jim Jordan's candidacy because of his and his allies' bullying tactics, as well as past history. President Biden visited Israel, but after a deadly explosion at a Gaza hospital, his meeting with Arab leaders was canceled. Biden and U.S. intelligence agree with Israel's assessment that what hit the hospital was a failed Islamic Jihad rocket, a claim that few, unfortunately, in the region believe. On returning to Washington, President Biden last night addressed the nation and made the case for $105 billion in additional aid. $10.6 $10.6 billion for Israel, $61.4 for Ukraine, as well as some aid for Taiwan uh, and uh, to be spent on the U.S. border. As Israel prepares its ground invasion, Israeli leaders said on Friday that they would cut off all ties with Gaza after the operation. This as tensions continue to rise in the West Bank, where settler attacks on Palestinians continue, and Hezbollah tests Israel's northern border. Ukraine disclosed that it has received ATACMS missiles from the United States that it's been using against Russian forces with devastating effect. Poland has voted out its illiberal conservative leadership, raising hopes that other illiberal democracies have a hope of reversing course. And Xi Jinping hosted 150 Belt and Road partners with Vladimir Putin as a guest of honor, portraying America as a destabilizing global force that provokes conflict. Uh, This as Beijing and Moscow woo the Middle East and the rest of the world. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis, who directs the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts CSIS among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Kathleen, welcome back. Uh, Jim Townsend is on a family vacation, so we very much appreciate you joining us. Uh, And Michael, more chaos uh, with Jim Jordan losing uh, two votes as speaker, the last one to an even bigger margin as lawmakers growing raged with the brutal tactics, frankly, employed uh, by his supporters that include uh, bullying as well as threats of violence against members and their families. Uh, It wasn't just Don Bacon's uh, wife, Angie, uh, that was so uh, targeted, uh, you know, in a in a piece of tape that was um, released by CNN. As far as I'm also concerned, each and every one of those people who are making these calls and are involved need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent uh, of the law. And I believe that Jordan should also be sanctioned. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Where are we? What's next? Does Patrick McHenry get more powers? Where, where are we in all of this? Well, look, I can tell you where we are, but no one can tell you what's next. Right? I mean, I literally am talking to a dozen or so different congressmen each day who are asking me what's next. And I'm talking to leadership staff and I ask them what's next and they don't know. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we continue to feed Russia and China's narrative that we're uh, a power in decline. So as you pointed out, uh, you know, Jim Jordan lost uh, the vote on Tuesday. 20 uh, GOP lawmakers voted against him. Uh, next day on Wednesday, he lost 22 uh, votes. So yesterday on Thursday, they started to coalesce around this idea uh, that they would elect Patrick McHenry uh, as a speaker pro tem until January. Right. So he would serve out for the rest of the year. Um, 
Now, it, it, was, it seemed like they were coalescing around, it was getting support, but there were a few on the far right that didn't support it, so it was clear that they would need Democratic votes to pass it. At the same time, there was concern that, okay, well, if he's in the chair through the end of the year, that gives Jordan more time to continue to work on people and, as you mentioned, continue to threaten members and their families back at home. So there was distaste on both sides. And for this to have worked, the, the um, Democrats would have to support it. And Jeffries had told his colleagues that they would only support a speaker pro tem who had voted to certify the 2020 election. And actually, McHenry did vote to certify the election. But they also wanted assurances that the Republicans would work with them in a bipartisan way to fund the government at the levels agreed to in the debt limit compromise and a guarantee uh, that there would be uh, a vote on the supplemental on the Ukraine-Israel uh, aid, all things that were very reasonable. I spoke to Republicans who were pushing the idea of, of McHenry, and they said they were not going to give in to any of the Democrats' demands. But it wasn't that they didn't agree with them. They just weren't – they didn't think that they could keep the promise. If they made these promises and they let, eventually elected a speaker that didn't keep the promises, they would have gone back on their word. So this uh, quickly fell apart. And, and as you pointed out, in the meantime, there's been tremendous pressure on Republican holdouts. And, you know, leading up even to the first vote on Jordan, you know, what he would do is he would call members who are undecided or knows. And after he got the phone with them, uh, they would then receive an inquiry from Fox News within five minutes. I right. want to know from that. Uh, Sean Hannity wants to know why you're not supporting Jim Jordan. Uh, and are you going to support and choose to work with Democrats electing a new speaker? These are very heavy handed tactics. And they progressed you mentioned to threats. I mean, Don Bacon's wife had you know horrendous uh, threatening voicemails left on her phone. Uh, Congresswoman Marianne Miller Meeks, who switched her vote to vote against um, Jordan's, gotten uh, threats. Uh, Drew Ferguson, a congressman Georgia, had to get a sheriff uh, to stand outside his daughter's school as well as his home. Uh, and it's and and yesterday in a meeting with the holdouts, trying to convince them uh, to come over, one of Jordan's allies, Warren Davidson from Ohio, said to these folks. It's not Team Jordan's fault that the holdouts are getting death threats. They are getting death threats because they voted against Jordan. Right? And they will continue as long as people oppose Jordan for speaker. Right? Absolutely astounding. Right? And a lot of people who did flip to vote for Jordan, who opposed him uh, in the conference on secret ballot, did so because of these, these threats and the pressure, as well as the threats um, you know, for a primary. It's really not a prescription for success. Even if by some miracle Jordan became the speaker, he would have a conference under him that is simmering and very divisive and really not supportive of him. Um, and we're going through this again today. As we speak uh, now, they are voting a third time on, on, on Jordan. Uh, and it's expected that he will lose again. And he is threatening to keep uh, the House in through the entire weekend to keep voting over and over again. And all this is doing is creating more division. And you know, people are worried that somebody's going to get hurt on the outside, a family member or uh, a member, and on, same on the inside, that this is going to come to blows. And the, the members are attacking people on social media regularly. And I am just astounded that the Republican leadership that's in place is, is letting this happen. Um, let me uh, first, uh, just very briefly, I mean, is is Jordan or any of the his supporters who are doing this going to face any retribution uh, as well as sanction by the body? This is uh, completely unacceptable. If people are doing this on your behalf, you are ultimately responsible uh, for it. Right. Mitch McConnell would never do something like this. Uh, Chuck Schumer would never do something like this. Right. I mean, in a bipartisan sense, lawmakers just don't do this kind of stuff emanating directly from them. Does he face any sanction? Within the body, no, I don't see it. Right, so it uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a double standard. It would have to be um, the FBI or the Capitol Police. 
Okay. Uh, uh, moving on, because I want to get to the aid package, uh, and we've got a lot to discuss today and unfortunately a fixed amount of time. Give us a sense. Uh, the, the funding uh, clock is uh, running down. Uh, you know, we have another vote, so Patrick McHenry doesn't have the powers uh, pro tempore to be able to move, right? Did not get the expanded powers. Where do we stand on defense spending and all of the things that matter in our universe? Well, we're nowhere on defense spending. Uh, uh, and, and the things that matter in our universe, unfortunately, we know where too because we don't have a speaker. So we were supposed to be spending these several weeks passing appropriations bills in the House, and now we've lost all that time. Uh, the defense appropriations bill has passed the House, but the Senate still has not passed theirs, so they're not in conference. The NDAA uh, is in conference, and that is proceeding, uh, but their timeline at best will be Thanksgiving, uh, and we could be in the midst of a shutdown at that point. Uh, but uh, when you mentioned spending, you know, as you know, the president sent over, as you mentioned earlier, a $106 billion supplemental package uh, today. And, uh, you know, I think in the president's letter to Congress, uh, it was really strong. I mean, he said, we are the indispensable nation in the world. Let's act like it. The world is watching and the American people rightly expect their leaders to come together and deliver on these priorities. And he's exactly right. It gets back to the point they made earlier today that our behavior is furthering uh, the narrative that Russia and China are pushing, that we're a declining power and we need to counteract that. Um, now, I uh, think I think you, you asked me last week about the size of supplemental and you said it would be more than $10 billion. I said, absolutely. I did not expect $106 billion, but... I, I think the, the package makes sense, but I think the president's going to have some big problems in the House. I can see the Senate supporting us. We have 61 billion of that is for Ukraine. Right. Uh, 14, just a little over 14 of that is for uh, Israel. And there's just under 10 uh, billion in humanitarian assistance. But there's two billion in there for Indo-Pacific uh, security, and 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 some of these are going to be a problem. There's also money in there uh, for for the border, and I could see the Republican narrative being we are spending more money protecting Ukraine's border than we are our border. We're spending more right. money on Ukraine than we are on Israel, right? Now, the Ukraine money is a year-long piece of money, right? And it's smart right. Biden to do that. He doesn't want to keep coming back and fighting this fight, right? But I think, and I already see uh, conservatives on Twitter complaining about the only fact they're only spending $2 billion, uh, on uh, in, in, on the Indo-Pacific. So I, I think the road in the House is going to be a very tough road. Uh, I think that the Senate will take at least three weeks to process this. I think the hope will be that some package would be put on a CR sometime around uh, November 17th if we're even able to come to agreement on that. So I think there's a long road to go. Uh -huh. And the president has indicated, too, he wants to send a, a domestic supplemental over next week. Uh, I think that the numbers for House Republicans are going to be almost impossible to swallow. Uh, but does it pass anyway? I think something passes at some point. I, I'm not, I, I, I don't see. I, I, you don't I, think I don't a majority of members are going to vote for this? If they're allowed to. Remember, this, the, the House Republicans control what goes to the floor. Correct. Right. Correct. So that's the rub. That's the problem. Right. Uh, I could see the Senate passing this um, very similar package to what the president's asked for. But the problem and even though I think a majority of the House would support this package, the problem will be who's in charge, who's sitting in the speaker chair and what is it they're willing to agree to and put on the floor. And I think we have major time. If it's Jim Jordan in that speaker chair, this bill has no chance. It will not see the light of day. 
absolutely uh, fascinating. A quick word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, their daily coverage, HII. Sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage. And GE Aerospace Sponsors are Air and Naval uh, Coverage. Uh, Dove, um, you know, we, we heard from Michael uh, about uh, the level of uh, spending and obviously Israel's military capability uh, is very, very uh, significant. And we are going to transfer stuff uh, from stocks as we're uh, doing uh, now. But the dynamic is uh, very complicated. Uh, you wrote a great piece in The Hill uh, talking about President Biden's uh, visit. And I want to get to that uh, in, in a moment. Um, the president met with uh, Bibi and the war cabinet, but he was also very coldly snubbed by King Abdullah, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, uh, and Mohammed Abbas in the wake of the tragedy uh, at uh, the hospital uh, in Gaza. U.S. officials agreeing with Israel's assessment uh, that it was a failed uh, missile launch. But Jordan's uh, foreign minister uh, said not only does he not believe it, that ultimately it doesn't matter. And that's very problematic and a broadly messaged uh, by Arab uh, leaders who could do more to sort of say, let's be patient and see uh, where uh, this goes. The president urged uh, Israelis, go easy, don't make some of the same mistakes, uh, rage-filled mistakes we made after 9-11. Um, you know, the, the border will be opened at some point, uh, but it's unclear when. Uh, and complicating things today, Israeli leaders said, after this war, we are washing our hands of Gaza, no working, no doing anything with it, throwing the ball into Egypt's lap, which Egypt has said, I don't want this ball uh, in my lap. Um, where, you know, and, and I, King Abdullah has said the same thing. It's it's not for us to be bailing you out of territories that you guys occupied. Where are we? Where does this go? Because Israel is committed to destroying Hamas after these heinous attacks. But this is a dynamic game with a conflict that could spread. How did the president do? Where are we going? And how much worse can this potentially get? Well, it can get an awful lot worse. Um, let me start with the other Jordan, because I think that ties into what Michael was talking about, the Israel aid package and the Ukraine aid package. Uh, I personally think that uh, since Jim Jordan's entire uh, modus operandi since he came to Congress was essentially to prevent the government from getting to do anything, I think one of the reasons he's continuing to stand for speaker is simply to keep the government closed uh, in effect um, without formally closing it. And that means that the assistance to Israel uh, isn't going to happen. And that's a problem because the Iranians are going to see that. Hezbollah is going to see that. Hamas is going to see that. Uh, those em uh, elements within the Arab world who are anti-Israel are going to see that. And they're going to conclude, you know what? we should keep going because the Americans aren't going to bail the Israelis out. That is a huge, huge problem. Now, in terms of uh, washing their hands of Gaza, of course, that's what they said in 2005 when they pulled out. Um, you can't wash your hands of Gaza. They're just too close, too next door, and you can't dump it all on a country, Egypt, that's got its own economic problems and certainly doesn't want radicals crossing into Sinai where Egypt already has its hands full with uh, terrorists and radicals. So that's not going to work. Um, the first thing that has to happen is that the Israelis really act on what Biden asked them to do, which is to be serious about letting the people in southern 
Gaza get the assistance that everybody says they should get. Now, right now, they're waiting for 20 trucks to cross into Gaza. It still hasn't happened. Martin Griffiths, who's in charge of aid and is a very decent human being, by the way, for the United Nations, uh, says they need 100 trucks a day. And, and whether it's 100 or 90 or 80, it's a hell of a lot more than 20. Uh, and Sisi has to let them through. Well, he's not going to be inclined to do all that work to help things out if the Israelis are dumping Gaza on him. Uh, so that creates a complication on that border. Then you've got a problem that the Hezbollah folks, while not fu fully attacking Israel, are stepping up their attacks to the point that uh, Israel just evacuated the town of Kiryat Shmona, which has 20,000 people. So 20,000 people have just moved out. Who knows what's going to happen up there? Who knows what the people in Tehran are telling the Hezbollah folks to do? And finally, in terms of what the Jordanian foreign minister said, you got to remember this. What really matters is these governments, uh, all of those six countries and actually several more that have any kind of relationship with the Israelis, don't particularly want to lose that relationship. The more they speak out in, in anything that the Arab street sees as favorable to Israel, the more vulnerable they become. Words are just words in the Arab world, quite frankly, very often, particularly if they come from a government. And so if the Jordanian foreign minister says what he's saying, given that the majority of his own population is Palestinian, if that's going to keep people quiet and allow right. Israel to have uh, the relationship, the peace that it has with Jordan, so much the better. So I'm not terribly worried about that any more than like I wrote in my article, the Organization of Islamic States condemned Israel. So what? Has anybody broken the Abraham Accord yet? That's what we really ought to be looking at. Once one of these countries walks away from Israel, that's when the worries have to start. And that's when you have to start thinking about maybe this war really will get wider. Um, uh, I want to uh, get to that in a minute, but Michael reports uh, that as uh, this moment in the program, Jordan uh, lost seven more Republican votes on the third ballot. So he effectively loses again, although he has said that he's going to keep going, as Michael said, uh, all weekend uh, to uh, try to do that. Hey, follow the you know, he is an acolyte of Kevin McCarthy's. So uh, why wouldn't you go 15 uh, rounds? Although, you know, the, the direction is, uh, you know, I, I think Kevin McCarthy used more sweeteners, uh, I think. Uh, in order to lure folks. Uh, uh, Dove, uh, let me ask you uh, this. Um, as Gaza is in crisis, uh, tensions also are rising uh, in the West Bank. Tensions are also rising on the northern border uh, with uh, Hezbollah. Houthis have gotten in the action, shooting again as they regularly do uh, around the Horn of Africa on U.S. ships. They fired uh, weapons uh, in the direction of Israel, but everybody's expectation is that they were actually shot uh, toward uh, the USS Kearney. Uh, I think it's at least the sixth uh, such incident where U.S. destroyers have been shot at uh, over the past uh, number of years. Um, you know, I think we should be shooting back, but that's, a, uh, you know, at those missile launchers, but that's a different story. Um, Israel has struck uh, Damascus and Aleppo airports as a warning to Syria. Uh, the carrier battle groups are there as a warning to uh, Iran. You mentioned the Abraham Accords. Um, this is at the early stages of this war. We saw an incident where Palestinian and Islamic Jihad, you know, a weapon fired at Israel, misfired, killing Palestinians, and then Israel was blamed for this, which means that any action possibly taken on the ground is going to become problematic. Uh, and the deeper they get embroiled, if you're 
Iranian-backed militias, you don't necessarily have to move now. You can, you know, you can launch something in the north at a very inopportune moment, uh, as opposed to when everybody is expecting it. At the same time, Abbas is, because of these reprisal attacks uh, by settlers, becoming less popular, and Hania, the Gaza leader, is moving ahead. What are the dimensions and the steps here that we need to be uh, mindful of? Because this, you know, the Abraham Accords may not be at risk right now, but we're in the beginning stages of the first act of a multi-act play. Well, uh, let's start with the West Bank. Um, I don't know the extent to which Biden was able to press Netanyahu to just stop everything on the West Bank. If he didn't do it, he needs to do it because that is, as you say, weakening an already very weak and corrupt Abbas and uh, promoting the Hamas line. Uh, so that's something we can do. And uh, there have been several people, myself included, who basically told the Israelis, look, if you're going to keep spending money on the West Bank, we're just going to reduce the amount of aid we give you. Yes, we're going to give you emergency aid now, but over the long term, you're not going to get it because money is fungible. Uh, I think we need to take a very hard line with the Israelis on that and make sure that it happens now. So that that's on that issue. On the uh, militias, it really comes down to whether the carriers are actually going to do anything. Uh, something I've also written about, which is simply this. Right now, we're going to in about a week, I guess it'll be. We're going to have two carriers on station. Right now, we have one, the Ford, uh, which means we can operate twelve hours a day with an Alpha Strike. You know, the forty-eight odd aircraft that they've got that can go in and blast things up. Um, once the second carrier shows up, you can operate twenty-four hours. Now, the question then is: Okay, you can operate. But will you operate? Will you do anything against Hezbollah if Hezbollah attacks Israel beyond what it's already doing? That is, again, a question of America's resolve and how the region is going to pursue, perceive the United States. Remember, who's standing on the sidelines here? It's China and Russia. And the Russians are delighted that we're preoccupied with the Middle East. And of course, they'll, you know, they're rooting for Jim Jordan. Let's face it. They don't want another penny to go to Ukraine. So the Russians will be watching to see what we do in the in the Middle East and whether we're serious. And of course, the Chinese are going around the Middle East saying we're not serious. So this has implications not only for the Middle East itself, but for the entire balance between the free world and the autocrats who are just standing on the sidelines applauding every single day when the Israelis and the Hamas are at each other's throats and the United States is at its own throat. Um, uh, did you like, I mean, you uh, and everybody on this program uh, has called on uh, President Biden to make that case. This was only the second or maybe third Oval Office address that he's given uh, in office. It was short, sweet, to the point it was 15 minutes. It had some very Biden hallmarks in it. Uh, Michael uh, quoted from it. it. It was, I think, a very uh, good speech in, in many respects. And again, the shortness and the sweetness of it helped. From your standpoint, uh, how is the, what are the marks you give the president for handling this crisis? Oh, up to now, I give him exceedingly high marks. It's pretty clear that he went to Israel, not because he loves Netanyahu, that's a joke, uh, but because he wanted to pass a message on to Bibi, you had better do something about those poor people in Gaza who are not firing missiles at you. Netanyahu is still enthralled to his extreme right wingers 
whom, by the way, he has not eliminated those crazies from his security cabinet, believe it or not. Right. They're still in there. Um, this this gave him a vehicle for going to them and saying, look, what could I do? The president pushed me. No, 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 no. But the president did that. He spoke out about the uh, attack on the hospital. And uh, even if the Jordanian foreign minister and others choose not to believe it, it, it gave tremendous credibility to the fact that it's the United States, not just Israel, that has concluded that it, it was a, an Islamic jihad rocket. The other thing um, he did. Oh, go ahead. The other thing he did, which is really important, uh, you know, he signed this uh, a statement together with the leaders of France, Britain, Italy and Germany right after the Hamas attack, condemning it and, and specifically saying Israel had a right to defend itself by going out there. He demonstrated to the others that we're still there on this. And, you know, Schultz of Germany has been out there. Uh, Rishi Sunak is there right now as we speak. Macron is going out there. And so that's a message that the West, at least at the leadership level, regardless of what people are doing on the streets, uh, is still supporting Israel. And that's very important as well, because it does increase Israeli morale, but it should also increase pressure on Netanyahu to do the other thing they're asking him to do, which is not to choke off Gaza. Uh, We will uh, see about that. Kathleen, you've been very patient. I want to get to you uh, in just a moment, but a reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cirillo and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, Kathleen, 21 months uh, into the Ukraine war, uh, Ukraine has finally... uh, uh, received a TACMS missiles uh, from the United States, uh, putting them uh, to good use. The administration said we didn't want to telegraph this so that the Russians were surprised. It appears uh, that that was the case. And the president made a very passionate case uh, that we are investing in America's security, that this is not a price, the $61 billion in additional aid on top of about $100 billion that we've already contributed, uh, you know, allows the Ukrainians to fight on uh, behalf of uh, democracy. Um, mm-hmm. Is this enough? to change the vector of the conflict? And what are the additional capabilities in your view uh, and support and other steps uh, that the Western alliance has to do? Because the concern is obviously Israel's Hamas war distracts attention uh, from what is still uh, a state on state conflict um, that still hangs in the balance. Sure. Uh, So when you talk to Ukrainians on the ground, they will say they need uh, long range artillery, they need air defense, and they need uh, mine clearance capabilities that um, they're actively reconstructing their country as quickly as they can. And mine clearance specifically is a really critical issue. Um, so they've made progress on that front. And, you know, as they've said over and over again, they don't want U.S. troops, they want ammunition. And they're putting it to good use. Um, is this going to be decisive? You know, it remains to be seen. Um, but they're certainly being able to do good things with it. Um, what I am struck by when I look at all this and also in the context of the conversation with uh, you and Dove and, and Michael um, is how this, it does seem that these these conflicts are at a strategic level interrelated. This is, you know, when we see um, Russia, Ukraine, Hamas, Israel, um, uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh issue, um, these are, instances where you know different countries and different groups are using force to try to um, redraw 
borders um, and, and challenge the status quo of the international system that we have. Um, are we going to hold the line? And the lines in Ukraine in so many ways, but also in Israel. How, how, how do we hold the line? How do we roll back these, these authoritarian and other illiberal appetites for, for this violence and, and human atrocities that, that undermine stability and this global order that we've, we, we've come to rely on? There is this sense that some have uh, that, you know, as you said, are, are not just interconnected, but actually that there could be uh, nations operating in collusion. You know, there are a number of people who've called for a more strategic uh, approach of using of use of looking at China, Russia, Iran and North Korea as as actually an axis. Uh, as opposed to uh, just sort of a loose confederation of, of folks. And uh, we're, we're going to get Patrick to talk about the, you know, Xi uh, Putin meeting uh, in Beijing, where uh, they were basically saying, you know, love you, man. Um, mm-hmm. What is the approach that you think we need to be taking uh, that's a more collective, concerted approach? Because yeah. Iran may not have been directly involved, but its greasy fingerprints are all over this. and you know, the more mayhem there is in the Middle East, the more they look at it as helping themselves and they look at it as I can keep my powder yeah. dry and shoot when it's advantageous to me, not now. Yeah. I, so in terms of an axis, I, you know, I, I, I'm i not ready to sort of commit to that theory yet. Uh, I'm still waiting. There, there's some evidence for it, but yeah. I'm not I'm not fully there. But what I do think we ought to 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 factor into our strategic calculations is that we're we're seeing opportunism. Like sheer opportunism for illiberal, you know, actors and authoritarians to redraw boundaries, settle grievances and create mayhem, mayhem to their advantage. Uh, exactly. It's uh, the so, you know, it's Festivus all the time. It's, it's yes. now now yes. for the airing of grievances. <laughs> right. Uh, you know. In a really, really horrible, horrific, tragic. Yeah, it's it's not yeah. funny. Uh, it's, it's not really, funny. It's really. Yeah, it's I mean, I mean, if we decide to con- to allow this world to exist, to continue, I mean, and there's things that the U.S. can do and, and assistance packages are, are part of that. Um, but if we, the, the democratic world, choose to allow this world to exist, it's going to be chaos. It's going right. to be mayhem. There's going to be human rights atrocities that, that will blow our minds, and and it will probably, you know, undermine our own economic prosperity and stability. You know, markets I, like stability. Um, I I would uh, point out that actually the Israeli economy is getting hit by this, right? I mean, uh, the yeah. three hundred sixty thousand reservists. Uh, these, you know, the they're the folks who are in the tech sector and in engineering. And there was a great article I think in the New York Times uh, about that. Uh, I should also point out, right, Nagorno Karabakh, hundred twenty thousand people were, you know, basically driven from their homes in 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 a week. Uh, yeah. And uh, Azerbaijan's leader Aliyev uh, made a speech referring to Armenia as Western Azerbaijan, right? So we, you know, that, that right. has uh, a lot of Armenians concerned that, you know, the dismemberment of the of the country is is actually far closer. Uh, and yeah. again, there was no international response to, you know, Dove's point earlier. And so, you know, why, you know, there's no, no response. So why wouldn't I take uh, the rest of the yeah. country? That two questions, because you have about two minutes uh, left. Uh, the first is, uh, terrorism is beginning to spread. Uh, in Europe, we saw a French teacher killed, uh, two Swedish soccer fans shot on a Belgium uh, Brussels street 
um, you know, and then obviously the horrifying uh, episode where a young, you know, a six-year-old, newly six-year-old, uh, lovely little Palestinian boy was stabbed to death by his landlord who also injured his his mother. How do we need to think about what the terrorism outlook is going to be? Because it could be spontaneous and wide scale, again, responding to events that are happening on the ground, irrespective of whether they're legitimate uh, or not. So I don't have a specific prescription for the counterterrorism problem specifically, but it does seem to me that we've had this long-standing debate in the strategic world about what defense and national security is. Is it like guns and ships and bullets and posture and um, and offense, defense, conventional? Is it that stuff, or is it um, a concept that refers to the, the where, where people are the object, are the referent objects, where we have to think about their own needs and their own. Um, abilities to thrive and mental health and those sorts of things. And uh, there's this, this sort of ongoing, you know, war between the two camps that, you know, the defense side says, no, 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 we need to, it's uh, national security is hardcore defense and human security people like, well, but humans are, you know, part of war. And um, so to ignore that is to actually ignore the, the, the key aspects of, of war and conflict. Um, we got to get over this debate and we got to start thinking about, you know, this world in which humans are and people are radically empowered. Um, they are able to deliver all sorts of, um, you know, amazing things from their their iPhones that can have strategic effect on discourses and, and international polit political movements. Um, that's the world in which we're living and uh, and it's it's gonna get more so i think and so let's start thinking about counterterrorism strategies in a world where we've got individuals that are hyper empowered uh that's uh, a very uh, wise uh, approach very quickly poland massive res yeah. uh, reversal uh what does it mean even though uh the duda government and law and justice can actually do quite a lot to stymie Donald Tusk yeah. uh, and, and his allies. But what does it mean more broadly uh, for Europe and illiberal democracies in your view? Yeah. So when I was there in August, the election was top of mind for everybody. And the overwhelming sense was that this was the most important election um, since the end of the Cold War. And I, I tend to agree for all of the reasons that you stated in the intro. Um, the opposition parties, um, they won a you know, 54 percent of the vote. It was the highest voter turnout uh, they've had in a long time, if ever, uh, nearly 75 percent of the population. Um, so. It, it was a overwhelming and, and you know resounding uh, support for a course for Poland that is 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 more liberal. Um, so yeah, to, to to sort of end my thinking on 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 uh, a happy note or a positive note, uh, this was a major step uh, forward for fighting back the tide of illiberalism. In terms of what we can expect from this government, um, and particularly in terms of defense matters, you know, with speaking to folks over there, um, the overall trajectory of Polish defense policy is likely to remain the same. They um, are trying to position Poland to be the partner of choice for the United States and the, the military um, center of gravity in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, the question is going to be on execution of the details of execution, not the overall trajectory. There's there's broad agreement on that. Um, this uh, this coalition is likely to try to make uh, Poland much more strong in the European Union. 
Um, they believe that uh, the the prior government has undermined Polish standing in the EU, and it's time to repair that. It also is probably a very good thing for uh, uh, Ukraine-Polish relations. Now, um, the Ukraine, uh, Poland has absorbed a huge number of refugees from Poland. Right now, it stands at a, a just under one million refugees, according to UNHCR, um, and they have just. They've they've been integrated into society in all sorts of ways, and the illiberal, you know, um, coalition or the go government was was trying to or beginning to think about the Ukrainian refugees as as a, a bit of a friction point. Now, and, and I don't want to overstate that because there is so much overwhelming support in Poland for Ukraine and uh, the Ukrainian refugees that they have absorbed. And uh, but there was a little bit of a tension there. And we saw this pop up with the grain issue in September where um, the two countries had a spat and the Polish government said that they were no longer going to be supplying uh, Ukraine with arms because of uh, concerns over the export of Ukra um, Ukrainian grain to Poland. So long and the short of it is that this government that's going to be coming in is likely to be much more uh, sympathetic towards Poland on those kinds of issues like grain, which is, of course, a vitally important issue for Ukraine's survival. Kathleen, thanks very much, because I know you got to punch out and you were uh, more than generous with your time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Patrick, uh, you have been extremely patient, and I'm sorry we've gone a little bit more uh, linear uh, on this program uh, than we would otherwise, in part because of uh, the the magnitude of of the uh, Hamas uh, issue. Um, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin put on a show with 150 uh, leaders, uh, China trying to play uh, a bigger regional role. It's going to be interesting because uh, China has dramatically increased its influence, especially among Gulf countries. Uh, its message of, I don't really care about anything. This is about trade. And I'm good with that. Uh, and uh, there are governments who don't want to be criticized, whether they're Saudis uh, or, or anybody else. How effective was this show they put on uh, in sort of increasing their hand? Viktor Orban uh, was the only European leader to go there. Not only go there, uh, was the only European leader uh, or among the leaders to go up and shake uh, Vladimir Putin's hand after uh, his speech, calling the United States, you know, a global disruptor, a global provocateur, uh, continuing with this narrative that somehow it's America's fault that... <laughs> You know, the Ukraine war was somehow America's fault. How how effective are they in getting this message through? And in your estimation, capitalizing on the rage, however illegitimate it may be, uh, that the Arab world feels and is directing uh, toward Israel, uh, because it's a very, very interesting dynamic at a time when China is very interested in displacing the United States uh, regionally and worldwide as, as the global leader. Well, China is courting the global South generally, but it's also using these particular wars and issues, as you say, Vago, to try to build audiences and support for China's policies. Obviously, leveraging this third Belt and Road Forum that was hosted in Beijing. Yes, 150 countries, but not leaders. In fact, there were fewer leaders at this meeting than the last uh, forum. Um, Putin was one of them, and it's amazing how much he sunk into the background, despite the fact that uh, Putin and she had a separate discussion 
uh, with officials on either side of a table, very formal looking, but it just showed how Russia has been reduced to kind of a ward of the Chinese economy and a dependent on North Korean arms. Um, I do think, though, there is uh, uh, real um, uh, seriousness to China's narrative, um, and we see this uh, affecting everything from the Ukraine war to the Israel-Hamas conflict um, to uh, influence in uh, throughout the global south, but especially in East Asia. Um, in Ukraine alone, for instance, just the, the idea that China's model for development is meant to be put on a pedestal and then contrasted with an American approach to the world, to Ukraine, to the Middle East, to Asia, that is more military focused. Um, and of course, that's a false comparison. Um, and like many of China's narratives, uh, you know, they only tell what they want to tell um, and they leave out all the inconvenient details that uh, that make for a more balanced discussion, which is ironic because China's marketing what they call the balance the diplomatic approach of China, whether it's in right. the Middle East or Ukraine or Asia, to the American approach that's suppo supposedly uh, completely out of balance. Um, you know, the, uh, the the fact is that the Belt Road Initiative has lost steam. Uh, it, it's been five or six years since there was a peak number of uh, loans given, uh, uh, you know, close to $100 billion. That was down to $5 billion as COVID struck. Um, and so they've recalibrated the Belt Road Initiative to try to say, oh, well, now we're going real green. So forget about all those coal plants that we've just been building uh, around the world. Um, and since 2021, when they announced their global development initiative, which was kind of a supplement to the Belt and Road Initiative announced 10 years ago, that was meant to try to get a handle on the fact that China was being criticized for uh, indebted uh, indebtedness that it was uh, sowing around the world, and it's been playing hardball on some of these debts in Sri Lanka and Zambia and elsewhere. Um, and uh, so they've been giving out smaller loans, more carefully vetted, um, fewer big railroad projects, but still some infrastructure and trade, but more trying to sell it as green and, and trade oriented, which is, of course, they're, they're, they're emphasizing the positive and they're trying to uh, erase all the negative criticisms of this initiative going forward, because it is going to be smaller going forward. And when we see, um, you know, a trillion dollars announced uh, spending over the past decade, I think we have to take that number with a grain of salt. I think there, it's only about a quarter of that that's actually gone out directly from China to loans. The rest of that money is accounted for in various ways about how China's trying to provide support to the global south. Uh let me ask uh, a concern that many are voicing, which is, uh, you know, given the degree of chaos in the United States, uh, given the Hamas war, given Ukraine, all of the other distractions, that this would be an opportune time, right? If you were China, you would capitalize and move on Taiwan now. Is is that a legitimate fear from your standpoint? Opportunism is always a factor in uh, looking at what might be part of the calculations for an aggressor. Um, and so that's one reason why I think uh, President Biden has included uh, some supplemental funding uh, for the Indo-Pacific. Specifically, that funding, by the way, is $2 billion to help go into shoring up the uh, badly needed uh, submarine industrial base, which will help support the AUKUS deal, especially before Prime Minister Albanese comes to the United States this, uh, this next month. I think um, we have... Um, uh, a real challenge in trying to think through the timing of Chinese actions. Um, we just cannot assume any day is going to be peaceful, but the overall strategy of China remains the same, and it was it's it's played out very well, I think, in this year's 
China Military Power Report, which I can talk about. Um, yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just if you think about what they emphasize on China's strategy, um, you know, nothing new, but um, a, a new emphasis in the active defense approach of China, um, which is oriented toward supposedly protecting their sovereignty, is is leading to many more uh, coercive intercepts and risky surface ship maneuvers. In fact, 10 times, you know, or five times the number that we've seen uh, in the last uh, 10 years. Um, and I think that's, um, that is of concern. So that suggests that, yeah, China could be inching toward getting ready to do what the, is the second element of the strategy, which is to fight and win wars against a strong enemy, which is a code word for the United States. Um, and they want to counter intervention in the first island chain and beyond, and they want to project global power. And they're doing all of those things quite well, if you read the China report, uh, because it is a comprehensive rundown of everything they're doing. What stands out in this report is uh, a couple of things. One is the use in the gray zone, these coercive measures as part of their active defense. That stands out. We've been reading about that on a daily basis, of course. Secondly, the ICBM and nuclear uh, buildup is, is standing out because in the last uh, you know year or two alone, China's built 300 new ICBM silos. And those silos are not all going to be built or, or occupied, apparently, with nuclear weapons. The report suggesting that there's a good chance there'll be long-range conventional uh, missiles in some of those silos as well that could right. hit U.S. targets. Um, they've also uh, updated the number of uh, nuclear weapons so that more than 500 by May of this year in the Chinese arsenal um, and going toward 1,000 at least by 2030 and, and continuing from there. Clearly, China wants to use this nuclear arsenal at a minimum for escalation uh, control, as the report talks about, and escalation, um, if not dominance, later on. And then finally, you know, the future of, of all the technology and where this is going is toward intelligentized uh, warfare. Um, who knows what that will look like and what that means, but that is also part of this report. So it's a, it's a comprehensive report. I give Michael Chase and Eli Ratner and the other officials who helped uh, shepherd this report through really high marks for getting so much information out in, a, in this report. Uh, and it's uh, really uh, thoughtful and the backgrounder uh, as, uh, as well as public elements of it have uh, also been very uh, thoughtful, getting a little bit beyond sort of where we were with Soviet military power that was seen as a bit propagandistic. This, this is sort of seen as somewhat more uh, empirical, which I think is, has been uh, the focus of that to be sort of a genuine, you know, even if, if some people will, will criticize it. We've got about a minute left, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Kurt Campbell, uh, yeah. an absolute dynamo of a human being who's uh, really a, a, a critically important player uh, on the U.S. focus on the Asia-Pacific. It helps that the president and the national security advisor and the secretary of state are all on the same page, uh, but he has been tapped um, to go from uh, the Asia-Pacific coordinator at the National Security Council to become deputy secretary of state. There's powerful messaging there, and he is a force of nature. What does Kurt Campbell, what does is, what is the new dynamic duo at the top of the State Department mean, uh, and how concerned should Beijing be, and how well, heartened should our yeah. allies be? I think the allies are very heartened. Um, I'm sure China will not be happy by this, although he's probably not likely to be confirmed before the summit meeting between Xi and Biden. Um, I think the fact that you have somebody who's been creating the strategy on the Indo-Pacific throughout the Biden administration, now moving over to the State Department, if confirmed, will help implement and operationalize a lot of the things he's been doing with allies and partners. So that's why so many allies and partners throughout the, the globe, not just even the indo Pacific, but in Europe and elsewhere, 
I think will be very excited by working with uh, a Kurt Campbell if he uh, becomes Deputy Secretary of State. Um, and, and that's in contrast to things like, you think about the minilateralism that uh, Kurt has helped to promote with so many countries like, like the US, Japan, and South Korea. And so what we saw with Foreign Sec Minister Lavrov in, in Pyongyang just this week um, was talking about uh, talks with China, Russia, and um, North Korea, a kind of a revisionist Camp David pact, right. if you will. Um, but what's different from, you know, Kurt's minilateralism is based on real interests. When you talk about Russia, North Korea, China, you have to know that China is really nervous about what Russia could provide to North Korea that could in turn destabilize China's border. Things that, again, you'll never hear China talk about. But those are the kinds of things as Deputy Secretary, Kurt Campbell could try to promote what our allies and partners are doing to, to strengthen order and what others are doing to undermine it. And uh, Patrick, there might be some people, we're calling it the China Military Power Report, but that's not the real name of it, even though that's what we call it. And there might be some confusion in the part of the audience. What's the real name of the report? Well, it's the Office of the Secretary of Defense Annual Report to Congress, colon, Military and Security Developments Involving the People's Republic of China. That's a mouthful, and that's why most people refer to it as the China Military Power Report. Yeah, exactly. Uh, always keep it uh, simple. Okay. Uh, and I'm uh, going to uh, point uh, to Dove because he's got his hand up and I think Michael's uh, got his hand up as well. So we can bring this uh, around and wrap it up in the next minute or so. Go ahead, uh, Dove. Go ahead, Michael. Sure. Um, first of all, I subscribe to everything that's been said about Kurt Campbell. He really is terrific. And you've got to remember, too, that he's yes, he's a specialist in Asia, but he brings Kurt Campbell to everything he does. And that's important as we worry about Europe, as we worry about the Middle East. One thing, and maybe Michael can expand on that, is as we know, there have been a lot of holdups for ambassadorships uh, over in the Senate. Uh, it's not just uh, the uh, coach from Alabama. And I think it's extremely important that Republicans who worry about China and Russia and our position in the world press the various holdouts that at least on this particular uh, position, Kurt Campbell should be uh, confirmed as soon as possible. Uh, I, uh, from your mouth to God's ears as usual, uh, Dove. Uh, and uh, Michael, uh, did you have any uh, last uh, political or other point uh, before we part for the week? Yeah, real quick, I, I agree with Dove. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen Republicans still try and delay uh, some of these confirmations, including the uh, confirmation of the ambassador to Israel, because. Uh, some members of the Senate are concerned about his involvement with the original Iran nuclear deal. I mean, they're looking for any reason to slow things former, down. To get to for, know. Because it's former Energy Secretary, Dr. Jack Lute. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then I will point out that you know, the vote is wrapping up. We're still ongoing, but uh, there are 25 votes against Jordan right now. Uh, there were 22 votes against him on Wednesday, uh, 20 votes against him on Tuesday. So he continues to go in the wrong direction. Uh, however, I still believe that he will try and keep them in over the weekend to continue voting. So there's still no end in sight to this uh, terrible chaos. Uh, guys, thank you very much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. I hope you all have uh, a great weekend, uh, a great week, and look forward to having you back on uh, again next week. Uh, and a special thanks to our audience for joining us. We appreciate it very much. And a special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, tune in again on Sunday for our business roundtable. Until then, uh, have a uh, great weekend, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for joining us.